Man toils and pants, and after all effects but little. The Creator in the silent majesty of power, noiseless yet resistless, achieves by a word the infinite wonders of omnipotence. In order to loose the bands of winter and bring in the verdure of the pleasant spring, He does not send forth His angels to hew in pieces the thickened ice or to strip off from the mountainside the gathered snows or to plant anew over the face of the bleak earth flowers fresh from His creating hand? No. He breathes from His lips a mild warmth into the frozen air, and forthwith in stillness but in irresistible power the work proceeds, the ice is shivered, the snows dissolve, the rivers resume their flow, the earth awakes us out of sleep, the hills and the valleys put on their refreshing verdure, the fragrance of earth takes wing and fills the air, till a new world of beauty rises in silence amid the desolation of the old. Such is God's method of working both in the natural and in the spiritual world, silent, simple, majestic, and resistless. Such was the Reformation. Such were the revivals in Scotland under our fathers of the covenant. Such was the Kirk of Shots on that memorable Pentecost when the unstudied words of a timid, trembling youth carried salvation to five hundred souls. Such was Ire in its Pentecostal days when from the lonely church at midnight there went up to heaven the broken sides of that man of prayer, John Welsh. And such was Northampton in later times when Edwards watched and prayed for its citizens, and when from the closet of that holy man there went forth the living power that wrought such wonders there. And is the Lord's hand shortened that it cannot save? Or is ear heavy that it cannot hear? In quote. Introductory remarks to this book by way of supplement to the author's original preface. The venerable author of this work has prefixed a few remarks to his volumes respecting the nature and use of such a kind of history as that which his compilation furnishes. In it he adverts at the outset to the inspired narratives of the New Testament as to the success of the gospel in apostolic times. His sketch of this is very brief, as indeed was necessary and fitting consisting of little more than a reference to the different passages in the Acts of the Apostles in which mention is made of the success of the gospel in different parts of Judea and of the world. We may venture a little farther back and for the sake of unity and completeness point out the allusions made in Old Testament history to the success of the same gospel at different periods of the former dispensation. From the beginning downward, the work of the Holy Spirit presents to us many of the same features and characteristics as in our own day. Periods of revival and decay succeed each other. Iniquity abounds and is allowed to proceed onward apparently unchecked as if God had forsaken the earth. A few remain faithful and testify for Jehovah, all in vain. Then suddenly God steps in, makes bare His arm, does His own work, puts aside the instrument, manifests special grace, and reads special glory to His name. Then perhaps judgment succeeds, either the swift vengeance of His sharp sword or a long night of death. And on He draws nigh once more, puts forth His hand, and the tide rises in silent majesty like the ocean along all its shores. Again barrenness prevails and desolation covers the land. Then he opens the windows of heaven and the swollen torrents rush along the valleys diffusing life on every side. Such are his dealings with the children of men and such a plan on which the kingdom of grace is administered having like that of nature its seasons and fluctuations its winter and its spring its droughts and its flood. 
All to show forth more clearly God Himself is the doer of the whole, to sink the creature and exalt the Creator, that thus men may not mistake the hand by whose pressure the tide rises, from whose invisible but resistless influence every ripple takes its form and course. All is God and God is all, man the mere subject or spectator of the change. It is God's earth made for His glory, and He doeth with it according to His will, manifesting at every new turn of its history some new marvels of wisdom, love, grace, and power, alike in His dealings with a rebellious world, and in the calling in of His own chosen ones, whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. God has had His single witnesses from the beginning, each in succession bearing testimony to the love of a redeeming God, and looking joyfully forward through the gloom of night to the rising of the morning star. But it is not so much with the single witness-bearers that we have at present to do as with those groups of them which God from time to time has raised up for the glory of His name. Our narrative is not so much designed to be the history of solitary stars, however bright, as of clusters and constellations, though perhaps apparently of inferior luster. Number 1. The first indication of any great and gathering of souls is in the fourth chapter of Genesis, where it is written, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. These words refer, no doubt, to the effects of such an ingathering, rather than to the nature or manner of it. Still, as President Edwards remarks, this seems to have been the effect of a remarkable outpouring of the Spirit of God, the first remarkable outpouring that ever was, too. There appears to have been some special work of the Spirit in the days of Noah, immediately before the deluge. We might have inferred this from the general tenor of God's dealing sense, from which it is manifest that always before the infliction of judgment He sends His Spirit, not merely to strive with men, but to gather the weed into His garner before the chaff is set on fire. Probably this was the case in Noah's days. The mass of the world's population remained impenetrable and went on recklessly in crime with judgment hanging over them. But there were, in all likelihood, some with whom the Spirit not merely strove, but strove effectually, and who were safely lodged in the better art before the deluge came, being taken away from the evil to come. Number three, Abraham's day was in many respects a remarkable one. There was a band of witnesses for God all raised up together such as had never been seen before nor since till the days of the apostles. Abraham, Lot, Melchizedek, Job with his four friends who with all their failings seemed to have been men of God. All these coming together not only lead us to rejoice that God had such witnesses in that age but also to infer that there were many more such who though unrecorded here are yet written in heaven. Surely the Holy Spirit wrought mightily in that period when men such as those we have named stand forth as the representatives of the church in monuments of divine grace and power. Number four, during the wilderness sojournings of Israel, there were several indications of a work of God at different periods. We read, for instance, regarding the people that when He slew them, then they sought Him, and they returned and inquired early after God. Psalm 78, verse 34. And though with regard to the majority of the nation this was done feignedly and under the mere influence of terror, still it is almost certain that at such season there was much real turning to the Lord and much of the Spirit's awakening and converting power manifested before the eyes of Israel. While the soul of Moses was grieved at their false heartiness and formality, 
yet doubtless it was oftentimes cheered by witnessing many real conversions. Number five, the days of Joshua seem to have been days of blessing. The unanimity which prevailed among the people, the cordiality with which they followed him as their leader, and the zeal which they on several emergencies manifested for the glory of God indicates something more of a genuine religion than had been before manifested. And when in answer to his dying charge, they solemnly declared with one voice, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. Joshua 24, 24. We can scarcely fail to recognize in this the Holy Spirit's power, and given them one heart and one soul to seek the Lord. Number six. The next great awakening is that recorded in the beginning of the second chapter of Judges. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum to reprove the people for their ingratitude and backsliding. On hearing his expostulation of mingled severity and love, they lifted up their voice and wept. The Holy Spirit seems to have descended at Bochum as he did at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in convincing power. The whole camp was awakened. One united cry of conviction and alarm rose from the tents of Israel, and the sacrifice which they immediately offered shows that their convictions drove them to the blood of sprinkling. Surely this was the mighty hand of God. It must have been a solemn scene. Number seven. On several occasions during the period of the judges, there were remarkable movements among the people very similar to what had taken place in the wilderness. The seasons of alternate revival and decay are perhaps more marked during these 400 years than at any other period. Israel forsook God and worshipped idols. God gave them over to their enemies and wrought against them with his terrible judgments. Then he returned to them in mercy, swept off their invaders, and poured out the spirit of repentance upon them. Number eight, in the days of Samuel, God seems to have made bare his arm. He seems to have wrought mightily in the midst of them through means of that holy man who is truly one of the most wonderful of all Israel's mighty men, combining in his own person the offices of prophet, priest, and king, and presenting to us from childhood to age a most marvelous example of consistent holiness, childlike simplicity, manly boldness, and heavenly walking with God. Number nine. Under David there seems to have been a most extensive revival of the work of God in Israel. The Spirit seems to have been plentifully poured out on the nation in those days, when he fashioned the lips of David to utter those manifold breathings of his soul, which while they guided the worship of Israel in that age, led their eye forward to him who was the true theme of all the songs of Zion. Number ten, Solomon's day seemed to have been days of refreshing. The Holy Spirit was manifestly present at the dedication of the temple, making the people's hearts to overflow with gladness when coming together to worship God in the midst of the very types which spoke of the manifold fullness of a coming Savior. Jesus was then lifted up and men were drawn to him by the Father. Number 11. Several periods in the history of the kings of Judah seem to have been blessed with the outpouring of the Spirit. In the reigns of Jehoshaphat, Josiah, and Hezekiah, God visited his people and sent rain to his weary heritage that his name might not be forgotten in Israel and that a promised Savior might not want many, even in the days of Israel's idolatry, to rejoice in his approaching advent. Number 12. Probably during their captivity, God gave it evidence that he had not forsaken his people even in their desolation and exile. Many were raised up in Babylon to testify for the true God. Tribulation seems to have humbled them. 
and the hearts of the believing ones were gladdened by receiving a little revival in their bondage as well as by having Jehovah as a little sanctuary in the land of their enemies. Even in Babylon the Holy Spirit wrought his mighty wonders and manifested his power in raising up and sanctifying such men as Ezekiel and Daniel, two of the most holy, heavenly, spiritual characters which the Old Testament presents to us. Number 13. At the return from Babylon, the Spirit again moved upon the face of that long, desolate land, bringing order out of confusion and light out of darkness, renewing the face of the earth. Something more was wrought than merrily rearing the walls of Jerusalem or rebuilding and readorning the courts and chambers of the temple. Living temples rose by the Spirit's hand, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the cities and villages of Judah. 14. The last scriptural record of a revival in Israel is that alluded to by the prophet Malachi. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Malachi 3, verse 16. This description has manifest reference to some striking spiritual movement among that degenerate and God-forsaken people. It is not the picture of an ordinary state of things. It is not the mere two or three meeting together to talk of their common hopes and common joys. It is evidently some drawn together of God's faithful ones, a company whose numbers the Spirit had been adding to in a very striking way, a band such as the praying ones in the upper chamber of Jerusalem after the Lord's ascension, a band such as that which drew around Wesley and Whitfield in our own land, a band such as that which God seems calling out and joining together in our own day. The Lord called out thousands and ten thousands more than have already been done. The Lord linked together in blessed bonds of love those whom He has already called. The Lord make ready a people for the coming of the Son of Man. The present situation of the Church of Christ bears a striking resemblance to its condition in some of these past ages to which we have been referring. Iniquity prevails and the love of many waxes cold. Yet still there is a remnant witnessing for God amidst the crooked and perverse generation. Still the Holy Spirit is manifestly working among us and reviving us in our bondage. True, there are no scenes such as that of Israel at Bochum, a whole people melted down before the Lord and trembling at His word. Nor are there scenes such as that of Pentecost when three thousand were converted under one sermon. Yet still there are tokens of God's presence and favor even amid marks of His just displeasure against our sins. There are signs of His returning to bless us as in the days of old. In the days of Zerubbabel, when the Jewish church was just beginning to raise her head a little amid the ruins of Jerusalem, the prophet Haggai was sent to comfort her under her desolations with the assurance that Jehovah was still with her and to cheer her with the prospect of coming, though still distant glory. Israel's consolation may be ours. We have the same assurances of unchanging love to take refuge in and the same prospect of approaching glory and deliverance not only for the church of Christ, but for the whole earth. Nothing can make Jehovah break His covenant with Israel or lead Him to forsake His people and His temple. It was not the extinguished fire and the shivered altar that could induce Him to depart from the shrine where His glory had so long made its visible abode. It was not the ruined temple with its plundered courts and spoiled glory that could lead Him to forsake the Mount Zion that He loved. It was not the deserted city with its fallen towers and dismantled bulwarks, nor the desolate land with its untilled and trodden fields that could drive him from the beloved Jerusalem, or from the soil which he had given to Abraham and to his seed as an inheritance forever. 
nor was it all Israel's long transgression aggravated, aggravated and multiplied age after age it could make them cast them utterly away if only they would return unto him from all their backslidings. Even so, may we take refuge in his grace, resting ourselves upon his promises and looking to him to revive his work in the midst of us. True, our iniquities have separated us from God. Our backslidings testify against us. We have sinned away his mercy. We have grieved the Holy Spirit so that his hand works not now among us as in the same mighty power as in other days. Our pride in which we so much resemble Israel has grieved him. He cannot dwell with those whose feeling is, Stand by, for I am holier than thou. Our unteachableness and stubbornness of heart have vexed him and constrained him to leave us to the blindness of our own dark minds. Will he always strive with those who will not be taught? and who prefer man's wisdom to his, our anger, wrath, malice, clamor, and evil speaking have grieved him. For he is the spirit of love. His emblem is the dove. And how can he dwell amid the bitter strife of human passions? Our inconsistency and worldly mindedness have banished him from our coast. For how can he whose office is to glorify Christ Abide with those who name the name of Christ, yet do not depart from iniquity. Nor can anything more certainly quench him than that formality and hollowness of religion which is but too prevalent in these days. The drawing near to God with the lip while the heart is far distant is one of the sins which God most abhors and which tends more perhaps than any other sin to grieve the spirit away. And oh, what an amount of formal, hollow profession is there amongst us. The churches of Christ, like Jeshuron, have waxed fat and kicked. Like Ephesus, they have left their first love. Like Sardis, they have but a name that they live and are dead. Like Laodicea, they fancy that they are rich and increase in goods and have need of nothing, but knowing not that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Yet God has not forsaken them. And he is making these, or iniquities and backslidings, the occasion of display and yet more of the riches of his grace. He is lifting up his voice to awaken us from our security. He is stretching out his hand to shake us out of our slothfulness and causing us to feel that it is not for any Christian or for any church of Christ to be enjoying the luxury of Eve and Zion and forgetting that this is the wilderness, not Canaan, Egypt, not Jerusalem, a place for the pitching of our tents day by day, not the city of everlasting habitations. Oh, that the churches of Christ would awake at the sound of His voice. Oh, that they would turn unto Him who hath torn and who will heal them, who hath smitten and who will bind them up. Oh, that they would recognize the Holy Spirit's hand and power from the beginning downwards to the present hour. Oh, that they would cease to think of Him as some vague, diffusive influence and acknowledge Him as the living Spirit of God, by whose personal indwelling and in working in our souls we are quickened, convinced, converted, comforted, sanctified, and made meet for the kingdom. Who can say how much of our present barrenness and backsliding may be traced to our not honoring the Spirit with that honor which is due unto His name? Dr. John Owen truly remarks, quote, There is nothing excellent among men, whether it is absolutely extraordinary, or whether it consists in an imminent improvement of their abilities, but is ascribed in Scripture to the Holy Spirit as the immediate operator and efficient cause of it. Of old he was all. Now some would have him to be nothing. End quote. 
How can there be prosperity in a church or progress in a soul where there is not the distinct acknowledging and honoring of the Holy Spirit in everything? He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Book 3 In the 17th century Chapter 1 Extracts of the life of a number of ministers remarkable for their zeal and diligence in the work of the gospel in England. Section 1 Some instances of those who died in the beginning of the century before 1640 Baines, Stock, Rothwell, Bolton, Taylor, Clark, Carter, Sibbs, Herbert, and Ball. Number 1. Baines He was sent to the University of Cambridge and admitted into Christ College where his conversation at first was so irregular that it much grieved his father who before his death, being intimately acquainted with one Mr. Wilson in Birchin Lane, left with him forty pounds a year desiring him that if his son did forsake his evil courses and become an honest man, he would give him that forty pounds a year. If not, that he would never let him have it. But it pleased God not long after his father's decease to show him his sins and to work effectual repentance in him for the evil of his ways. So that forsaken his former evil company and practices, he became eminent for piety and holiness, and according to that of our Savior, much being forgiven him, he loved much. After which gracious change wrought in him, it was not long before Mr. Wilson fell dangerously sick, and hearing how God had dealt with Mr. Baines, he sent for him and desired him to pray with him, by which also by his savory discourse, finding that what he had heard of him, rather came short of the truth than exceeded it, According to that trust reposed in him, perceiving himself to be upon his deathbed, he told Mr. Baines of the forty pounds a year which his father left with him, and faithfully delivered up to him those writings of the agreement which had passed between his father and him. Sometime after Mr. Baines was silenced, yet preached where he might have liberty, and as the weakness of his body would suffer. The rest of his time he spent in reading, writing, meditation, and prayer, saving that upon occasion he instructed and comforted those that came to him in private, wherein he had a very happy and heavenly gift. Upon a time he went to the house of Mrs. Sheeve, who was his wife's sister at Cranebrook in Kent, where observing that she and others of the family used to misspend much precious time in playing at cards, in such like times as the custom was, and still is too much used in gentlemen's houses, he took occasion on the Sabbath day to speak against it, and it pleased the Lord so to work upon Mrs. Sheaf's heart by that sermon, that when she came home she came crying to him, saying, O oh, brother, why would you thus suffer me to live in sin to the dishonor of God, and would never tell me of it before? To which he replied that it was best of all that God had wrought in her by the public ministry. It pleased God to make him an instrument of the conversion of that holy and eminent servant of Jesus Christ, Dr. Sibbs, he died in 1617. Number two, Stock. When it pleased God to call him to that employment that he ordained him to, he proved a painful and faithful minister of Christ, not to insist upon his constant and incessant employments, which he performed for so many years with the general approbation of those that were religious and judicious, not a Sabbath intermitted wherein, if health served, he preached not twice, either in his own charge or elsewhere abroad, besides his catechizing of the younger sword in the weekdays at certain times, and other such offices as to the pastoral function are necessarily annexed. 
Not to insist, I say, upon this, as the apostle saith to the Corinthians, You are the seal of my apostleship. So it may well be said of this man of God, many Christian souls having professed themselves to have had their first effectual calling and conversion from him, as the instrument in such manner as few others could say at that time. Besides the multitudes of those which have acknowledged themselves to have been edified and bettered by him, many faithful ministers do profess to have lighted their candle at his lamp, yea, some of them to have received their first beginnings, not of light only, but of spiritual life and grace under his ministry. Tis no small honor for a man to win, if it were but one soul. For to win souls is to win more than the whole world is worth. What an honor is it then to be not only a winner of souls, but a winner of such as prove winners? How gloriously does this blessed man of God shine now in the kingdom of God that was an instructor of those that are instructors of others, that was a converter of those that are converters of others. For his freedom of speech and reproving of sin, and that even to the faces of the greatest, whether in public or private, when occasion required, many even now living are able to testify, and some accidents made it more publicly known than he intended. He was very zealous and earnest for the reformation of some profanations of the Sabbath, wherein he prevailed also for the alteration of something offensive in that kind, as well as with the main body of the city, as with some particular societies. He persuaded also some of the companies to put off their solemn festivals from Monday to Tuesdays, that the Lord's Day might not be profaned by their preparations for those feasts. He died in 1626, having been preacher at All Hallows, Bread Street, for 32 years. Number 3. Rothwell after many years spent in the university, he betook himself to the ministry and was ordained presbyter by Dr. Whitgift, then Archbishop of Canterbury. For a considerable time, all his parts and gifts were but as so many weapons in the hands of a madman. He continued some years without any change of heart or sensible work of grace upon his soul, but preached learnedly, as they call it, and lived vainly. He abhorred debauchery and debauched companions through the height of his spirit, but gave himself to hunting, bowling, and shooting, more than became a minister of the gospel, and sometimes he would swear faith and troth, and in his passion greater blasphemies. At length it pleased God, who separated him from his mother's womb, and called him by his grace to reveal his son in him, which because it was famous, and he himself afterwards proved the means of the conversion of so many. I shall set it down as I remember I heard him speak it. He was playing at bowls amongst some papists and vain gentlemen upon a Saturday somewhere about Rachdale in Lancashire. There comes into the green to him one Mr. Midgley, a grave and godly minister of Rachdale, whose praise is great in the gospel. Though far inferior to Rothwell in parts and learning, he took him aside and fell into a large commendation of him. At length told him what pity it was that such a man as he should be a companion to Papist and that upon a Saturday when he should be preparing for the Sabbath. Mr. Rothwell slighted his words and checked him for his meddling. The good old man left and went home and prayed privately for him. Mr. Rothwell, when he was retired from that company, could not rest. Mr. Mr. Midgley's words struck so deep in his thoughts. The next day he went to Rochdale Church to hear Mr. Midgley, where it pleased God to bless that ordinance so, as Mr. Rothwell was by that sermon brought home to Christ. He came after sermon to Mr. Midgley, thanked him for his reproof, and besought his direction and prayers, for he was in a miserable condition as being in a natural state. He lay for a time under the spirit of bondage till afterwards, and by Mr. Midgley's hand, 
also he received the spirit of adoption, wherewith he was so sealed that in the after part of his life he never lost his assurance. Though he was a man subject to many temptations, the devil very often assaulting him, yet God was mightily with him, so that out of his own experience he was able to comfort many. He esteemed Mr. Midgley ever after as his spiritual father. The narrator is going to move forward to the sectioning of the Awakening in London in the time of the plague, 1665, from the life of Richard Baxter, part 3, page 2. One great benefit the plague brought to the city was that it occasioned the silenced ministers more openly and laboriously to preach the gospel to the exceeding comfort and profit of the gospel, insomuch that to this day the freedom of preaching, which this occasion cannot by the daily guards of soldiers nor by the imprisonment of multitudes be restrained. The ministers that were silenced for nonconformity had ever since 1662 done their work very privately, and to a few not so much through their timorousness as their loathness to offend a king, and in their hope still that their forbearance might procure them some liberty, and through some timorousness of the people that should hear them. And when the plague grew hot, most of the conformable ministers fled and left their flocks in the time of their extremity, whereupon divers nonconformists pitying the dying and distressed people that had none to call the impenitent to repentance, nor to help them to prepare for another world, nor to comfort them in their terrors, when about ten thousand died in a week, resolved that no obedience to the laws of any mortal men whosoever could justify them for neglecting of men's souls and bodies in such extremities, no more than they can justify parents for famishing children to death, and that when Christ shall say, Inasmuch as he did it not to one of these, he did it not to me. It will be a poor excuse to say, Lord, I was forbidden by the law. Therefore they resolved to stay with the people and to go into the forsaken pulpits, though prohibited, and to preach to the poor people before they died, and also to visit the sick and get what relief they could for the poor, especially those that were shut up. Those that set upon this work were Mr. Thomas Vincent, late minister in Milk Street, with some strangers that came thither since they were silenced, as Mr. Chester, Mr. Janeway, Mr. Turner, Mr. Grimes, Mr. Franklin, and some others. Those oft heard them one day that were sick the next and quickly died. The face of death did so awaken both the preachers and the hearers that preachers exceeded themselves in lively, fervent preaching and the people crowded constantly to hear them. And all was done with so great seriousness as that, through the blessing of God, abundance were converted from their carelessness, impenitency, and youthful lust and vanities, and religion took that hold on the people's hearts as could never afterwards be loosed. From Neil's History in the Year 1665, quote, The face of death and the arrows that fled among the people in darkness at noonday awakened both preachers and hearers. Many who were at the church one day were thrown into their graves and next. The cry of great numbers was, What shall we do to be saved? Such an awful time England never saw. Quote. From Mr. Vincent's book entitled God's Terrible Voice in the City, quote, quote, It was generally observed amongst us that God's people who died by the plague among the rest died with such peace and comfort as Christians do not ordinarily arrive unto, except when they are called forth to suffer martyrdom for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Some who have been full of doubts and fears and complaints, whilst they have lived and been well, have been filled with assurance and comfort and praise and joyful expectation of glory when they have lain on their deathbeds by this disease. And not only more grown Christians, who have been more ripe for glory, have had these comforts, but also some younger Christians whose acquaintance with the Lord hath been of no long standing. 
I can speak something of my own knowledge concerning some of my friends whom I have been withal. I shall instance only in the house where I have lived. We were eight in family, three men, three youth, and an old woman and a maid, all which came to me hearing of my stay in town, some to accompany me, others to help me. It was the latter end of September before any of us were touched. The younger ones were not idle, but improved their time in praying and hearing, and were ready to receive instruction, and were strangely borne up against the fears of the disease and death every day so familiar to their view. But at last we were visited, and the plague came in dreadfully upon us. The cup was put into our hand to drink, after a neighbor family had tasted it, with whom we had much sweet society in this time of sorrow. And first our maid was smitten. It began with a shivering and trembling in her flesh and quickly seized on her spirits. It was a sad day which I believe I shall never forget. I had been abroad to see a friend in the city whose husband was newly dead of the plague, and she herself visited with it. I came back to see another whose wife was dead of the plague, and he himself under apprehensions that he should die within a few hours. I came home, and the maid was on her deathbed, and another crying out for help, being left alone in a sweating, fainting fit. What was an interest in Christ worth then? What a privilege to have a title in the kingdom of heaven! But I proceed. It was on the Monday when the maid was smitten. On Thursday she died full of tokens. On Friday one of the youths had a swelling in his groin, and on the Lord's day died with the marks of the distemper upon him. On the same day another youth did sicken, and on the Wednesday following he died. On the Thursday night his master fell sick of the disease, and within a day or two was full of spots, but strangely beyond his own and others' expectations recovered. Thus did the plague follow us, and came upon us one by one, as Job's messengers came one upon the heels of another. So the messengers of death came so close one after another in such dreadful manner, as if we must all follow one another immediately into the pit. Yet the Lord in mercy put a stop to it, and the rest were preserved. But that which was very remarkable in this visitation was the carriage especially of those youths that died, who I believe were less troubled themselves than others were troubled for them. The first youth that was visited, being asked by his father about the provision he had made for his death and eternity, told him he hoped, if he died, he should go to heaven. Being asked the grounds of his hope, said, the Lord had enabled him to look beyond the world. And when he was drawing near to his end, boldly inquired whether the tokens did yet appear, saying that he was ready for them, and so a hopeful bud was nipped. But let not the father or the mother weep, and be in sadness for him. He is, I do not doubt, with the father, and his heavenly father, which may be their comfort. The other also was a very sweet, hopeful youth, so loving and towardly, that it could not choose but attract love from those that were acquainted with him. But the grace he had gotten in those years, being, I suppose, under seventeen, did above all beautify him and stand him in the greatest stead. In his sickness he had much quiet and serenity upon his spirit, and lay so unconcerned at the thoughts of approaching death, that I confess I marveled to see it. The sting and fear of death were strangely taken out through the hopes which he had of future glory. Yet once he told his mother he could desire to live a little longer. If it were the will of God, she asked him why he desired it. He told her he desired to live till fire and faggot came, and above all he would fain die a martyr. She said if he died now he should have a crown. He answered, but if he died a martyr he should have a more glorious crown. Yet he was not unwilling to receive his crown presently. And he went away with great peace and sweetness in his looks to his father's house. And I could not blame the mother's grief for the loss of such an only son. But to be so immoderate was not well. 
Now I am sure it is time to dry up tears and lay aside sorrows for the loss of him who had been so long filled with joys in the heavenly mansions. I'm reading from the book Accounts of Revival by John Gillies, and this is the year 1665, during the life of Richard Baxter and the plague in London, England. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.